Let's open God's Word now together. If you have your Bible, uh, please turn with me to Galatians, the letter of Paul to the Galatians, chapter 1. If you're not quite sure where to find that, it'll be in your New Testament. Just go right past the Gospels and then Acts and Romans and uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and you'll be there. The letter of Paul to the Galatians. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 5, uh, considering together the pure gospel. And today Paul is beginning his attack against a perverted gospel. And uh, he'll be uh, talking about this almost for the rest of the book. Um, and it's the main theme of, uh, of this epistle. Let's, um, we're going to begin reading again at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 10. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle... Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God, our Father, we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And so, Lord, may we be good students today by your Spirit and be trained by your Word. And, uh, Lord, I I pray that um, your Holy Spirit, the one who illuminates the Word and brings it home, would be at work today in our midst for the praise of our Savior. Amen. Paul's letter to the Galatians Uh, is a theological missile. Uh, It is a a piece of armor. Uh, It is uh, launched from the depths of Paul's grieving heart and meant to land right in the middle of the churches of of Galatia uh, and um, to deal with a false teaching, a poisonous teaching that has crept into the churches. Uh, It's a fighting letter. Uh, in my misspent youth, I uh, enjoyed listening to Kenny Rogers, and uh, one, of his, uh, one of his songs concludes with the line, sometimes you got to fight to be a man. And uh, I remember uh, as a young boy, that, boy, that hit home. <clears throat> sometimes you got to fight to be a man. I've lost uh, some of you already, you're, you're off into Kenny Rogers land, but I'd like to bring you back. Um, sometimes you got to fight to be a Christian. Uh, We all know that's true when it comes to godliness. Nobody uh, comes to godliness, you just go to bed uh, one night and you wake up the next morning and voila, you're godly. 
and you love everybody, and uh, all your besetting sins are gone. That's not how it happens. It's how we pray it would happen, but it doesn't work like that. You've got to fight for godliness. Well, uh, it's also true when it comes to orthodoxy. Orthodoxy doesn't just happen. It doesn't just kind of hang around. Uh, the devil is constantly attacking the truth of the gospel, and, and so orthodoxy constantly has to be fought for. And um, <clears throat> Paul is doing just that in this letter to the Galatians. He's fighting for the purity of the gospel. Uh, a, a, a false teaching has, has been sweeping through the churches, literally robbing them of the true and pure gospel. And so Paul writes <clears throat> strongly because it's a fighting letter. We're going to look just at our three points this morning, our desertion and distortion and damnation uh, taken from the text. Uh, desertion, Paul begins this letter. So after his customary uh, greeting, we get in verse 6 to the body of the letter, and it begins abruptly. <clears throat> I am astonished. Imagine uh, you, uh, your phone rings and you pick it up, and uh, you say, hello, and the other person, the first words out of their mouth is, what in the world are you doing? That would get your attention. Uh, that's what Paul is doing here. And it's meant to get our attention. The terseness of his tone reveals the intensity of his emotion. He is upset. He's perplexed. He's frustrated. He's incredulous. He's angry. What in the world are you Galatians doing? What's happening? This, uh, this, uh, this beginning here, the body, stands out particularly when you, when you contrast it with all of his other epistles. John Stott says, in every other epistle, after greeting his readers, Paul goes on to pray for them, or to praise them, or thank God for them. Only in the epistle to the Galatians are there no prayer, no praise, no thanksgiving, and no commendation. Uh, just for the sake of contrast, think about the church in Corinth. The, the church in Corinth was a mess. It was a train wreck. Uh, there, there are people, it, it is deeply divided as people say, I follow this guy and I follow this guy and I follow this guy. Um, there are, there's, there's a gross sexual immorality that's being allowed in the church as a man is having relations with his father's wife. Uh, people are suing each other in the church, in the church taking each other to court. Uh, when they have the Lord's Supper, wealthy people are getting drunk while the poor people are allowed to sit around and watch. It's a mess. And yet Paul begins his letter to that church by saying, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So if Paul can say that about the church in Corinth, what in the world is going on in the churches of Galatia that would make Paul begin this strongly? Why is he so upset? Well, he's upset because the churches in Galatia are deserting the gospel and the God who called them. It's a big deal. The term that Paul uses for deserting means to transfer one's allegiance. It would be used in a military context for a deserter, someone who abandons his post and goes and joins the other side. It's a very strong word. It's a heavy accusation. It has the moral stain of betrayal. 
And Paul explains to them why he's so upset. Not only, uh, there, there, there are several things he just lists here that highlights how serious their desertion is. First, it's, it's serious because of how quickly it happened. I am astonished you are so quickly deserting. Paul had planted these churches maybe two, three years ago. He had taught them the true gospel. But in a very short period of time, they're deserting that gospel for a different one. It's a sobering reminder to the church today. How long do you think it would take for Harvest Church to desert the gospel? Church history shows that it does not take long at all. Often it just takes one convincing, charismatic preacher. And the church is off on a different track. It is much easier uh, to lead a church astray than you might imagine. Well, Paul is devastated that they're so quickly deserting the gospel. Then secondly, whom they are deserting, notice he doesn't accuse them of deserting him. He accuses them of deserting God, the one who called you. Paul didn't call them. God does the calling, right? If you read Paul's letters, uh, when, he's, when he's talking about calling, it's God eternally calling and savingly, effectually calling sinners to himself in Christ. So the one who called you is God himself uh, through Paul's preaching. So they're deserting God. When, when, when they left off the pure gospel, they left off following after the true living God. And then third, the message that they are deserting. God had called them in the grace of Christ. And we're going to see through the, the uh, letter here that what Paul wants to highlight, what, what they've gotten rid of, right? The, the, the twist they've made in the gospel is they've just got rid of grace. And, they re, they, and they've, they've inserted a new principle, grace plus, plus work. But the gospel is a gospel of grace, of God freely giving to us in Jesus Christ what we needed. So free, gracious forgiveness of sins, free, gracious justification, where we are declared righteous before the throne of God by virtue of the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ freely given to us, not by works. Paul is so in, insistent on this through all of his letters. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of works. You didn't do it, lest any man should boast. It's by grace that you're saved. That's the gospel. Paul defines the gospel in Acts 20, 24 as the gospel of the grace of God. So that's the gospel they're deserting. The gospel of God's grace for sinners in Christ Jesus. And, and hence the astonishment and, and the disbelief. Why would you leave the gospel of grace? It's the only gospel there is. Notice he points it out. Not that there is another gospel. There's, there's no other good news for sinners in the whole world. Every other gospel message is about working harder and doing better. The only truly good news for sinners is the true gospel where, where God has in Christ done what the law could not do, what we cannot do. There's no other good news. So why would you abandon this? And the answer is because they were being led there. Someone was teaching them and leading them to abandon this. 
That's clear from verse 7. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. False teaching and distorted teaching uh, doesn't happen in the church sort of as a grassroots movement. It always has teachers at the front of it. False teachers. People who trouble and distort, and that's what Paul highlights here. The word trouble means to, to agitate. Uh, these men shook the church up. They, they caused theological confusion and relational division. We read about it in Acts 15, where the council of, that met in Jerusalem of the apostles and leaders, they wrote this letter and sent it to these churches saying, we have heard that some persons from us have troubled you with words. That's what's going on in the churches of Galatia. These men are causing strife and confusion in the church. Why? Because they're twisting the gospel. They're, just, they're distorting it. And whereas the true gospel serves to unite people, a distorted gospel will always cause division in the church. This word distortion means to alter something so that it becomes actually something else. And that's what these men, Paul says, have, have been doing. Uh, we, we find the essence of their message, again in Acts 15, verse 1, where we read that uh, the, 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 some men now came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, uh, we hear that with uh, 21st century American ears and we're aghast. Um, what, a, what a wretched heresy. But, but if you were a first century Jewish Christian living in the churches of Galatia, this is a this is pretty appealing message. Uh, notice these men were not denying that salvation was through Jesus. They would promise you that they believed the gospel was about grace and the gospel was true. All that they were saying is that the grace that comes through Jesus um, is for those who both believe in Jesus and obey Jesus, which means submit to the law of Moses. See, that, that's the only wrinkle they're really adding. They would say things like, we believe Jesus died for our sins. But of course, Jesus didn't simply die to forgive us. He died to make us part of his covenant people. Isn't that true? And you're supposed to say, yeah, that's true. Jesus didn't die just to forgive us our sin. He died to make us part of a body. His covenant people. And then these teachers would say, well, open your Bible. And of course, the Bible that they would have is the Old Testament Scripture. And they would ask the question, well, who are God's covenant people? Well, they're the Jews. The children of Abraham. Those who've come under and submit to the law of Moses. Those are God's covenant people. And so... It makes sense, it's plausible for them to say, uh, from Scripture they would say, right? The, that you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. You need to believe in Jesus and submit to the law of Moses. Now, unfortunately, as plausible as that message was, it was a distorted gospel, and it turns the gospel of grace into a gospel of works. The gospel becomes now something you must believe and something you must do. The gospel plus, right? Salvation by Jesus and obedience to the law. Now again, you might think that this is an obvious error that the Galatian Christians should have been able to discern. 
But remember, um, we'll see in the letter, even Peter the Apostle and Barnabas were caught up in this, in this heresy. That's how plausible it was. Why, why was it so believable? Well, first, because it sounds biblical. Just pointed that out. It's, it sounds like makes total sense biblically. Secondly, because it's taught by very earnest, religious, um, moral, godly men. These aren't, these aren't unbelievers coming into the church teaching this stuff. These are men from Jerusalem, probably Pharisees, men who knew their scriptures, knew their Jewish history and tradition. So these are earnest, moral, religious, godly men. And, and thirdly, it's a culturally appealing message. If you're a Jewish Christian, you lost a lot when you came to Jesus. You lost your family, you lost your heritage, your, your place in society. And now these teachers are coming saying, actually, you don't need to lose all that. If you would just be circumcised and, and hold to the law of Moses, you can have it all back. That's very culturally appealing. You can have your family back. You can have your heritage back. You don't have to lose all these things. It's a great reminder to us that false teaching gains traction in the church today in the exact same way and for the same reasons. It sounds biblical. It's taught by earnest, learned, godly men. Uh, and it has a culturally appealing message. Uh, I think this, this describes the majority of large, attractional model churches in our country today. The fact is that if, if you can find a bright, charismatic young pastor, uh, and if, if he sprinkles his messages with Bible verses and tailors his message to the cultural appetite of his audience, that church will grow, I promise you. Just throw in a good band and you are off. If you don't believe me, just next time you're on vacation, you stop by your local um, care, uh, uh, attractional model church. That church will grow, usually from transfer growth from other churches. But the only thing that gets lost in all that, you see, the only thing that gets lost in the shuffle is the gospel. A message of faith and repentance in Christ Jesus. Grace and Gilbert writes this, people are seeing and hearing of virtually everything except their need for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and what a life dominated by this reality looks like. That is unfortunately absolutely true. The devil is always at work to undermine and distort the message of the gospel. It's happening in our day just as surely as it's happened in Paul's day and throughout the history of the church. I think one of the most uh, present Dangers that we're facing today is the subtle change in the gospel presented by the attempted synthesis of critical theory and intersectionality with the gospel. Some of you don't know what those words mean. They might be new concepts to you. But it is the controlling paradigm of the current conversation on race and justice in our culture. And many Christians are, are beginning to reinterpret the, the Bible and the gospel according to it. Albert Moeller uh, many of you know him, a, uh, the president of Southern um, Theological Seminary, um, huge voice in the Southern Baptist Church, uh, responded to the Southern Baptist Church's adoption of, or at least their condoning of critical theory and intersectionality as uh, helpful analytical tools. 
And uh, Moeller writes this, the main consequence of critical race theory and intersectionality is identity politics, and identity politics can only rightly be described as antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Eric Watkins has an excellent article in the September issue of New Horizons. Uh, I encourage you to read it. Uh, the Bible and Black Lives Matter. We just need to realize, friends, that this is not the Christian gospel. And what we're facing is not new. Uh, if you just think over the last hundred years in the American church, in the early 1900s, you have the social gospel and liberalism and, and where Harry Emerson Fosdick will get up and preach a sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? And uh, it's a powerful sermon, very convincing, where uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, a gifted, earnest man, uh, will say, um, we, we need to realize that the world is in shambles and here we have some of these people who have the audacity to argue over uh, you know, these little, pecuniary, these little um, petty little theological issues while the world's a mess and the church is called to engage and help the world. Now the, the petty little theological issues, of course, were did, was Jesus really born of a virgin? Did he really do miracles? Um, is the, um, did he actually die to atone for sin? And did he really physically raise from the grave? Um, those are the issues that Emerson, Emerson Fosdick considered petty. Uh, because they're petty in light of, in his mind, what the real issue is, the mess the world is in, and the church is called to, to do everything it can to make it right, and to align itself then with whoever's trying to make it right. Well, that's, that's the social gospel. And churches that adopted that gospel, mainline Presbyterian church, for instance, went, went and adopted that, that social gospel, and those churches are dead and empty. Why? Be because it's not the true gospel. So you have that in the early 1900s. Then you have 60s, in the 60s and 70s, liberation theology, very much the same theme. Ten years ago, emergent church movement, very much the same theme. Now social justice gospel, or what some are calling woke theology. All different variations, but all the, it's all the same game. All of them using the Bible, every one of them using the Bible to support their message. But, but all of them shifting the focus of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, away from saving sinners from the wrath of God through a message of faith and repentance in Jesus to the, 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 uh, the uh, emphasis of striving to make this world a better place. You see, the issue that's under attack when it comes to the purity of the gospel, the issue that will be under attack over and over and over and over again will be this, what did Jesus actually come to do? What is the primary and essential message of the gospel? Grayson Gilbert writes, Three years ago, Tim Keller, you know him, uh, former pastor of Redeemer, uh, PCA in, uh, in New York. Tim Keller tweeted this, quote, Jesus didn't come primarily to solve economic, political, and social problems of the world. He came to forgive our sins, end quote. That's exactly right. Jesus didn't come primarily to solve the economic, political, and social problems of the world. He came to forgive our sins. doesn't mean the church doesn't have things to say to the political and economic and social problems of the world. That we shouldn't care about these. Of course we should. But that's not the primary purpose of Jesus' coming. That's not the gospel. Well, Keller received a firestorm of backlash from professing Christians who accuse him of, of mis- understanding the gospel. 
Gilbert writes this. Christians need to keep first things first. Christ's redemption of sinners is of first importance. Period. Full stop. Acts of justice flow out of the gospel, but they are not the gospel. The gospel is a declaration that people need to hear. Good works are commanded. They are commanded. And they adorn the gospel. They show that this, we really believe these things and God really has made us new. But they are not the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The tragedy, you see, of all these distorted gospels, the tragedy is that they set aside the one true gospel which is actually able to transform lives and transform a culture. You look at the history of the church. When have cultures been radically transformed? It's when the gospel has been radically preached. A gospel of God sending Jesus to die for sin and, for, and to rescue sinners and repentance and faith being necessary and the judgment of God being real. So when that gospel is preached and when revival happens, societies are transformed because people are transformed. But when you, when you uh, twist that gospel, well, you lose all the power of it. So all these, the social justice, the, the social gospel movement, liberation theology movement, emergent church movement, how, have they really changed the world? Can you look around and point to evidences that, that, that these really worked? Well, no, that's why we now have the social justice movement. But another attempt with the same paradigm. How do you end racism? You preach the gospel to people who are sinful in their heart. And you show them that in Jesus Christ, um, we're made new. And there's a unity that now uh, in, adheres to the church of Jesus Christ, that by, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are one body. How do you end abortion and sexual perversion? You preach the gospel. Because the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. And every other gospel needs to be then rejected. Every little twist needs to be rejected. I read a great article by David uh, Zoll, founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries. Uh, he wrote a, a book review uh, on a book called Strange Rights. I've not read the book. But he just highlights that these new gospels are, 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 are the, the, these new movements. So uh, the social justice movement, for instance, he uses, uh, is an, it's a new religion. And, and he then says this, listen to this. What we can do as Christians with the true gospel, we can present a faith born of love rather than rage, of sacrifice rather than conflict. We can speak of a God who liberates us from the shackles of self and the never-ending mandate of perfection. We can speak of the Holy Spirit active and alive in the world, bringing goodness, light, and healing far beyond our capacity or imagination. Most of all, we can offer the one thing that all these new religions conspicuously lack, an ethic of forgiveness and reconciliation. Which is to say, the miracle of God's grace. In Jesus of Nazareth, we have a way forward for victims and victimizers alike. And that's exactly right. What you lose when you lose the pure gospel is you lose the grace of it and the power of it. And so Paul is, is 
doing everything in his power to hold up the unique, unparalleled, unparalleled, unrivaled gospel, the declaration from heaven that sinners can be rescued from the everlasting damnation that every single one of us actually deserves through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a cross. And sinners can be brought then into everlasting light and life and the glory of God, all received as a free gift by grace and grace alone. That's the gospel. And that gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. And that gospel has the power to transform a culture. And because it can do all that, and because to distort it is to deny and destroy all that, Paul has strong words to say. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. It means damned. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, is pre- if anyone, that means me, angel from heaven, anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He could not be more clear, could he? He says it twice. In case you didn't catch it the first time, let me say it again. Doesn't matter who it might be. Doesn't matter what his intentions might be. Doesn't matter how winsome he might be. If he preaches a different gospel than the one we received, anathema. Now, to some, Paul's outburst seems unnecessarily and even uh, unchristlike, strong. I mean, there's a, there, one commentator said, uh, now the modern reader will be able to discern uh, how unchristlike Paul's response is. His intemperate outburst, that's what he called it. How unchristlike is Paul's intemperate outburst? And you, you might be able to get on board with that. You might be able to say, it's a, it is quite strong. Um, I mean, anathema? Accursed? I mean, maybe these, they, maybe these guys were just ignorant. They didn't know better. right? They weren't, they weren't well taught. And there's no reason, actually, to assume that they were malicious. They're, they're just trying to help. So why is Paul so incensed? Well, Eric Alexander gives a great uh, illustration in his sermon on this. He says, imagine that you and your wife uh, were going to go out for a date, a night, and uh, you hire a babysitter, someone that you trusted, and you said to her, the baby's fine, Uh, she's just going to need a a bottle of warm milk before you put her down, and she should be be great. And so you're off, and you're having a a lovely supper at your favorite restaurant, and uh, the phone rings, and it's your next-door neighbor, who apparently is now at your house, uh, something's gone wrong. And, and um, she says, the baby is, is crying and crying and won't stop. And so you say, well, what happened? And the neighbor says, well, the babysitter gave her cold milk instead of warm milk. Now, if you burst out in anger, right? If you're, you have got to be kidding me. Cold milk, right? Somebody's going to say, that's a little over the top. That's not a warranted response. I mean, it's, it's an easily made mistake. It's, it's not that serious. It's easily remedied. You just, you just warm it up. But what if your babysitter said, uh, your neighbor said, uh, it, it looks like the babysitter mixed arsenic in with the milk. And the baby's in desperate pain. Uh, her life is in danger. Well, now your response is completely warranted. Makes total sense. The mistake is deadly serious. Doesn't matter what the intent was. This is the child that you love. And that's exactly how Paul feels about 
these churches, right? He loves these churches. He loves these saints. He is, he is incensed when he, when he hears about this twisted gospel that's going to be spiritually deadly to these churches. It will be spiritually deadly. It will be divisive. It will be destructive to the peace and purity and unity of the church. People will die spiritually because of this message. And he loves these people. He loves these saints. And it breaks his heart that someone would harm them. And so it's not only understandable, Paul's response, it's, it's completely appropriate. It's the only appropriate response. The, uh, the, the, the commentator who said that uh, the modern reader can, will be able to discern uh, how unchristlike is Paul's uh, intemperate outburst uh, apparently has not read from Mark chapter 9 where Jesus says, verse 42, if anyone causes one of these my little ones to stumble, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. I want you to think about that word better. Okay, millstone hung around your neck, thrown into the sea, and Jesus said it would be better for that to happen. Better than what? Better than facing the fury of the risen and reigning King Jesus who loves his little ones and you have harmed them. Jesus is deadly serious about his church and about his truth. And so must we. So must we. Well, how do we bring this home? What does this text have to say to us today? Let me give you four things. <clears throat> First, <clears throat> the devil is always at work to pollute and distort the true gospel. He's always at work. Secondly, that means we must always be keeping watch. There is absolutely no reason, friends, to assume that well-meant but misleading teachers cannot arise in our circles or that we can't be led astray just because we're reformed. So were the Galatian churches before they lost the gospel. So were the American Presbyterian, the mainline Presbyterian churches before they adopted the social gospel. There's, we're just kidding ourselves if we don't think it, it can happen here in our circles. Third, parents. As the spiritual guardians of your children, <coughs> you have a special, a particular... Hold on just a second. <clears throat> you have a particular obligation to protect your children, spiritually speaking. We talked about this uh, Thursday night. If you did not listen to that message, please do. You are called by God to teach and disciple and train your children in the true Christian faith. And if you do not, right, the world will be happy to take your place. And if you do not, distortion and heresy will enter into your family and your home because those who have not been discipled and have not been trained in biblical truth are sitting ducks for this stuff. When I see young people uh, in the evangelical world just easily being shifted to another gospel, the moral therapeutic deism gospel or the social justice gospel, whatever it might be, when, when, that, when I see them easily, quickly doing that, I don't blame the kids. Your parents never taught them. How are these kids supposed to know? How are they supposed to be uh, equipped against these things? It's on, it's on the shoulders of their parents. Jesus says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. 
So it's, it's critical. Your discipling and training and catechizing your kids is critical. But fourth, finally, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ must not only be defended, it must be believed and loved and treasured as the only hope for sinners like you and me. So before we defend the gospel, let's love the gospel and obey the gospel and proclaim the gospel. Let's actually really deeply believe it. Let's unashamedly say there's no good in us, but there is an ocean of good in Jesus. And that when we were impoverished sinners, aliens to God, rebels to God, Jesus loved us and gave his life for us. And so that even though we only deserve condemnation, Jesus has given us the free gift of justification. And Jesus has given us the precious gift of sanctification. And Jesus will give us the glorious gift of glorification, all because the gospel is a gospel of grace. And we offer that to the world. A gospel of the grace of God for sinners in Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. Amen. Oh, Father in heaven, these, these are hard words. But I thank you, Lord, that you've given us a true gospel, and I thank you that you call us not to live for the approval of men, but to be stewards of this gospel against the attacks of the evil one, the encroachment of earnest but misled teachers. Lord, this is happening in our day as it's happened in every day since the church began. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would equip us with wisdom and truth. I pray, Father, for our parents. I thank you so much for them. I, I thank you for um, their zeal to teach their children the truths of the faith. I pray, Lord, that um, you would just be a work in our church so that our, our parents and grandparents could just be committed. You've given us so many precious children here. And you've given us such a, a heavy stewardship and responsibility and calling. Better a millstone be tied around our neck than we um, neglect our responsibility and cause our little ones to stumble. And Jesus, we thank you that you're not leaving it up to us. You don't leave it up to our expertise, our abilities, that you promise us all the grace that we need. And, and we, need, we need so much grace. Father, I want to pray again this morning for children who have been born and raised in this church and who've heard the truth and are not walking in it. You know their names. And Father, I, I, I pray that you would have grace and rescue these wandering ones from the clutches of the devil, rescue them from the lies that they've believed. And Father, I pray that you give us wisdom and encouragement as we pray for them and speak to them. Lord, I just pray that we would see the fruit of, of conversion happening in their lives. We beg you, Lord, for our kids. And Father, I pray that at Harvest Church we would both defend the gospel, but Lord, uh, we would also love the gospel, that we would embrace it, that we would, Lord, proclaim it, that our lives would be formed according to it, 
a gospel of the free grace of Jesus Christ, a gospel of free forgiveness and powerful reconciliation. I pray, Lord, that um, through the gospel, you would bring transformation to our city, uh, to, Lord, our country, to this world, as the power of God is proclaimed in Jesus Christ. So bless us, Lord, to that end. We thank you for our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. We're going to close with a song that celebrates the gospel. It's not about us. Um, No power in us. Uh, Everything is because of Jesus Christ who is in us. Let's stand together and sing.